Well, good afternoon. I'm Carla Hayden, CEO of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and we really appreciate you joining us on this special, special day. This is our annual Dr. Martin Luther King commemorative lecture, and this afternoon we are very honored to have as our speaker uh, the Reverend John Arthur Nunes, President and CEO of Lutheran World Relief. And I think at that time you could give some applause. My script says that. <laughs> and the Pratt Library's King Commemorative Lecture is just one of the ways that the library makes sure and tries to at least contribute to making sure that the legacy and the message of Dr. King stays alive. And especially during these recent challenging times, Dr. King's message of hope and civility and trying to work things out is very important and we hope that each year that we have the lecture that we can inspire and have our patrons continue to be torchbearers of Dr. King's message. Now this afternoon and just as we were coming in our speaker who is very gracious and his wife is here too um, said don't worry the Ravens will win. <laughs> and he acknowledged that the people who are here um, are doing so on a very special day in Baltimore. And the reason why my jacket is red is because it's actually purple, but I'm so passionate about the Ravens that it's actually red. So we understand that, and so we really thank you uh, for coming out today. Uh, for, four, for nearly four years, the Reverend Nunes has been the president and CEO of Lutheran World Relief, and that is a $35 million global organization in 17 countries that is dedicated to working to end poverty, to combat injustice, and to alleviate human suffering. And before joining the Lutheran World Relief, he was a theology professor at Concordia University in Chicago and, a past, and the pastor of Bethany Lutheran Church in Chicago. He's the author of several great books, and we have those in the library, uh, one including Voices from the City, Issues and Images of Urban Preaching, and a children's book. And this is so important to have books for young people. Little Things Make Big Differences, a story about malaria. So without further ado, please welcome to the Pratt Library, Reverend John Arthur Nunes. Thank you, uh, Dr. Hayden. I'm uh, profoundly honored uh, for the invitation uh, to offer here today this distinguished lecture. Mrs. Edmonds, for your simply uh, stellar coordination of the details, you are deeply appreciated. I know something of the nonprofit world in which this great library operates, like Lutheran World Relief. You are dependent on the goodwill of your constituents. And so I thank you for all that you do, um, Dr. Hayden. This library is a Baltimore and national treasure, and that would be a good time to clap right there. <laughs> Greetings, friends, and literally my neighbors who live in a condominium building with us three blocks from here. I actually walk to work every day along Cathedral right by the big windows which for the last two months at least have made me feel a little bit awkward and honestly a little flattered to have that uh, face in lights. Uh, to my colleagues at Lutheran World Relief, an organization working to promote 
sustainable development to my Facebook friends, uh, and especially my BFF, my best friend forever, Monique, who will bless us with a song uh, before we leave the room today. But before I get started, this has to be one of the best singles ads ever printed in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it's not unrelated to our topic today. Single black female seeks male companionship, ethnicity unimportant. I'm a very good-looking girl who loves to play. I love long walks in the woods, riding in your pickup truck, fishing trips, cozy winter nights, lying by the fire. Candlelight dinners will have me eating out of your hand. I'll be at the front door when you get home from work, wearing only what nature gave me. Call 404-875-6420 and ask for Daisy. I'll be waiting. Do you know that over 1,500 men found themselves talking to the Atlanta Humane Society? (laughs) About an eight-week-old black Labrador retriever. Is it that men are so easy, or has race and ethnicity become less important? Don't answer that, either of them. I'm not sure we can answer that. Long before he became an icon in Americans' pantheon of societal saints, long before his name was associated with everything from parks to parades to postage stamps, long before his fame was marketed to sell everything from carpets to cars at MLK King Day blowout sales. Long before November 2nd, 1983, when President Ronald Reagan signed into law the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, long before everybody got on board, there was an unpopular prophetic civil rights movement whose public leader was actually unwelcome in many churches. In some cases, he was viewed as a radical, overeducated, a whippersnapper. But for me, Martin Luther King Jr.'s celebrations are times of gratitude. For me, it's a time to say thank you for the sacrifice. Not only Dr. King's sacrifice, but all of those who have enabled my generation, Dr. Hayden's generation, all of us in this room, to see further down the road of hope than many who came before us. And it's not because our eyesight is any greater or insights any deeper. It's not because we possess better understanding, but it is because we are standing on the shoulders of women and men who, though oppressed, were giants, overcomers, heroes, and sheroes of faith. And so we are the beneficiaries of their sacrifice. And so we are grateful. For example, yesterday was my 48th birthday. I was born in Montego Bay, Jamaica. Yesterday was also the 48th anniversary of Governor George Wallace's most infamous misstep, which he made on the steps of the Alabama State Capitol 
Montgomery, Alabama, January 14, 1963. Quote, he said during his first inaugural speech, Southerners played a most magnificent part in erecting this great divinely inspired system of freedom. And as God is our witness, Southerners will save it. Segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. In fairness to poor Governor Wallace, by God's grace, and maybe an assassin's bullet, he did later recant of his own blind racism that confused murderous exclusion with freedom. But as I reread that speech, I found it ironic that both Governor Wallace and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. were appealing to the same sources, the same overarching principles to make their case. The concept of God was used 29 times in Wallace's speech. The word freedom was cited 36 times. But I submit to you today that there was a third word that was conspicuously missing from Wallace's diatribe that day. The word justice. Justice is a word that calls us to consider what is fair. Justice is a word that's related to natural law, a basic human instinct to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong, and to treat people accordingly. Justice is a principle that flows from the fact that every single human person possesses inherent dignity, value, and worth, and every life has meaning and purpose. No matter what academic degree you've achieved or what social pedigree you've inherited, from God there is a higher inheritance, justice, the prophets call it. When King was accused of being an extremist, he wrote these words, Was not Amos an extremist for justice that flows like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream? Or as I once heard a street corner prophet in the city of Detroit offer, a very simple definition of justice, God don't like ugly and ain't too impressed with pretty either. Justice for the sake of human dignity and world peace. Governor Wallace was silent on that topic. And Dr. King had no choice. For you see, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. also stood, like we do, on the shoulders of giants. He knew his history. He knew to where the long arm of the universe was curved toward justice. He viewed himself as a part of a prophetic religious tradition that appeals to and calls out what is most noble in our humanity. This is a prophetic tradition that runs from Moses and Isaiah through Augustine and Martin Luther. And by the way, as a Lutheran, if I may just exercise a, a brief moment of pride and privilege, uh, King was actually born with the name Michael King, January 15, 1929. And his father, the Reverend Michael King Sr., renamed himself and his son after Martin Luther in honor of the way that German reformer changed the course of world history, moving away from the then tyrannous 
Roman Catholic system. And so King saw his life as a part of something greater, something larger than the historical perversion called slavery or Jim Crow inequality. King was a part of a Judeo-Christian tradition that also aligned with the moral teachings of Muhammad and even the mature thought of Malcolm X, a prophetic religious tradition that includes Gandhi, the Hindu prophet. King stood tall within a universal multicultural tradition that I believe is encompassing enough to carry us through our own troubling times today, our times of global antagonism. And here's what I mean. As we tremble ourselves in the face of terrorism, subjecting ourselves to these invasive searches by airport TSA officers. Not long ago, I was in Chicago and uh, Dr. Hayden's hometown and was traveling back, and I left Chicago a little earlier than my wife, Monique, but she left her um, uh, mascara and makeup bag in the hotel room and asked me if I could carry that pink and green bag uh, with me back to, uh, back to Baltimore. Pink and green, not coincidentally. And so I, um, I agreed, of course, and uh, stuck it way in the corner of the bag. And then that dreaded moment happened as the bag was on the x-ray machine. And the lady turned to me and she said, Sir, would you mind if we checked your bag? And, and I stood there looking stupid, and um, they opened the bag and began to rifle through it. And they said, oh, we found the problem. And my heart stopped within me as I thought of ways to explain what I was doing with this makeup bag. And they said, it's this, um, it's this book here, this Bible. I had my new leather Bible at the bottom of the bag. And, and so they saw that as a weapon of mass destruction or something. I, and I guess it can be twisted to be so in the, in the minds and hearts of some. But we live in fear of our enemies. King proposed, quite ahead of his time, another way. Quote, It seems glaringly obvious to me that the development of a humanitarian means of dealing with some of the social problems of the world is a much better way of protecting ourselves against the threat of violence than the military means we have chosen. MLK's immediate reference was in the 1960s to the devolving conditions in the Vietnam War. But there are many modern-day equivalents, not the least of which is Afghanistan and North Korea and the emerging radicalism on the continent of Africa. King was proposing that if we don't use our wealth now to make a difference for the sake of those who are suffering in this world, we will have to pay a higher military price later. Yes, those problems over there, according to King, are our problem over here. And as King said, we are indeed caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Life is all interrelated. May I share one modern-day humanitarian concern that I have, something that the organization for which I work is working on, something about which many of us are under-informed. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of malaria. Thanks. Now, raise your hand if you've ever had malaria. One, 
from our staff, in fact. Horrible disease, fever, chills, headache, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, finally death. What is the number one reason that malaria is spread in our world? Mosquitoes, I say, are the number two reason. The number one reason is human apathy. The fact that we're not doing anything about a solvable, beatable, and treatable disease. We've solved it here in the U.S. In fact, the Center for Disease Control was founded in Atlanta, Georgia in 1945 to address the challenge of malaria in the U.S. And so we've found a way to do something about it. Who suffers predominantly from malaria? The poor. Where? On the continent of Africa. And some of us do care more about whether the Ravens will beat the Steelers today than we do about malaria deaths occurring every 45 seconds on the average There will be more than 30 before we leave this room today. We have become, I think, overly contented in our own circumstance. Martin King, again, deeply woven into the fiber of our tradition is the conviction that all people are made in the image of God. If we accept this, we cannot be content to see people hungry or victimized or sick when we have the means to help them. If you're looking for a pro-life issue, this is it. Speaking of which, Monique and I have uh, five children, 80% of which are females, four girls, and then finally one son who is a prince of a piece of work. My My father says that my son is proof of the justice of God. Guess what percentage of farmers on our planet are female? Four to five. 80%. Now guess what percent of those 80% of farmers who are female actually own the land on which they work, which is how you make money. You don't make money in sharecropping. Less than that, two. Good guess, though. Very close. 2% of farmers who are women in this, on this planet own the land on which they work. Why? in part because they are caught in a vicious cycle and circle of poverty. Can't work because they're too sick to work. Sick up to 100 days a year. Can't get to the field. If you don't work in the field, you can't make money. If you can't make money, you can't buy medicines. You, can't, you have no product to sell. You can't get well. You can't get back to, back to the field. It's, it's a vicious cycle of poverty. And who, who suffers most children under the age of five? and pregnant women. Because of our apathy? That's a King Day question. $10 can provide an insecticide-treated mosquito net to protect a family for three years. And, 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 and motivated by this cause, my wife and I have written this little book called Little Things Make Big Differences. It's, and it is a children's book, as Dr. Hayden has said. It's wonderfully illustrated. And I'd I'd like to, if I may, just offer uh, a selection, a reading from it, just one page here. Um, It's based on a village in in, uh, Tanzania and a story of a real family there and their struggle with malaria and a little girl named Rahima. Tanzania is home to many magnificent animals, the gentle giraffe, the graceful impala, the enormous elephant, the beautiful zebra, the lazy crocodile, 
and the majestic lion all live here. But the only animal I'm really scared of is the tiny mosquito. Have you ever been bitten by a mosquito? I'll bet you have. In many parts of the world, a mosquito bite is just an annoyance. It itches for a couple of days and makes a bump on your skin. Then it goes away. But where I live, a mosquito bite can be deadly. We live in an age and time when sacrifice and humility seem to be coming, becoming passe. How to be happy and achieve success is all the rage. Amazon.com lists over a half million books on the topic of being happy and successful. But happiness cannot be our highest goal in life. That was Governor Wallace's problem. He was motivated by maintaining prosperity, mesmerized by the privilege that he had uh, not achieved, but that he had walked his way into. He was charmed by power. And he was trying to maintain what he called a, quote, divinely inspired system of freedom, but it was freedom for a privileged and powerful few at the expense of justice for many. As King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Only through sacrifice and personal commitment is there redemption. King knew that. When he was attacked by police dogs, blasted by hoses meant for fighting fires, not meant for being aimed at people, jumped in a jail in Birmingham and finally shot down on a balcony in Memphis. But Martin Luther King Jr. stood on the shoulders of giants in a prophetic religious tradition that taught him that suffering and sacrifice are redemptive. One such giant was W.E.B. Du Bois, a founder of the NAACP who spoke some strong words to the graduating class at Howard University at their commencement in 1930, telling them that sacrifice was the mark of a life well-lived. And I frankly can't imagine these words being spoken at a graduation ceremony in 2011. He said that because of sacrificing, quote, you may be crucified, dead, and buried, and on the third day you will be just as dead as the first. But with the death of your happiness may easily come increased happiness and satisfaction and fulfillment for other people. Strangers, unborn babies, uncreated worlds. If this is not sufficient incentive, Du Bois said, never try it. Remain hogs, end quote. Sisters and brothers, we are not hogs. We are part of a larger tradition. And the fact that you are here today shows that you are a part of a Kingian thing. Thank you for keeping alive a tradition of justice and sacrifice for the sake of other people. In closing, last year, 
the New York Times included um, an editorial humorous poetic piece by Rick Moranis called Something Else. And it went like this. If you see something, say something. If you say something, mean something. If you mean something, you may have to prove something. If you eat something, floss something. If you drink something, don't drive something. If you drive something, don't text something. I've added a few of my own. If you start something, finish something. If you want to know something, read something. Go to something called a library. Then think critically and self-critically about something. If you already think you really are something, then there's likely something in you that needs to reconsider something. If you sow something, you will reap something. If you earn something, then you ought to give the Enoch Pratt Library a little something. Or even Lutheran War Relief a little something. If you believe in something, then just do something. If you care about something, stand up for something. As my man Bob Marley said, get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. Don't give up the fight. If you stand up for something, then you will likely suffer something. But if you're willing to suffer something, then you very well might save something or someone. Because only through sacrifice, my friends, is justice achieved. Only through sacrifice are communities healed, our lives changed, our failures forgiven, are the poor fed, our broken situations fixed, and is malaria cured. Thank you. So, so as King asked, with Mahalia Jackson, when I come to die, have them sing Precious Lord. So I don't think anybody's here is getting ready to die, but we're going to have Monique sing for us <laughs> Precious Lord. Thank you. Precious Lord. Take my hand, lead me on, let me stand, I am tired, I am weak, Oh, pray. 
precious Lord, take my hand, oh, take my hand, precious Lord, and lead, and lead me home. have a lot of wealth um, concentrated in the hands of a few and sometimes there's a great deal of humanity that comes from that. One example is um, Bill Gates who took on smallpox, is it? So I, I'm just curious as to why you um, might perceive that someone like Gates has not responded to the malaria situation, especially since it seems so simple, as you illustrated, mm -hmm. with um, um, infest, uh, treated blankets or nets. Actually, the Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, have responded significantly to AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria. The, uh, the Millennium Development Goals, I think goal number six, uh, really does focus on that. Um, our work um, is partially funded, in fact, uh, by Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates. But it's going to take more than just one person or one person's wealth um, to make uh, a difference. Actually, actually, the, the progress is really quite amazing, even around malaria. Um, I, I hate to say this about the book because I'm saying that the book that we wrote is actually outdated, um, and it is in one section. At the very end, on the back inside cover, we describe one malaria death every 30 seconds. Um, and that used to be the rate of dying. And because of the work of uh, the President's Malaria Initiative and other work on the continent of Africa, it's now one every 45 seconds. So great progress is being made. Um, recently, there was a report, World Hunger Organization gave a very substantial report on malaria rates in 17 countries. Will Doyle, do you know the answer, how many countries that was? I think it was 17 countries, and rates were reduced by 50% in 17 targeted areas where they, have, uh, where they were evaluating. So there actually is progress. There's a long way to go. Um, things on the continent of Africa are actually better now than they probably have ever been. The point I was trying to make is that doesn't negate the fact that people are continuing to die unnecessarily and that we can make a difference with a very small, relatively small donation. We don't realize the power of the, you know, the U.S. dollar and the power we have, frankly, to, to make a difference around the world. So that, that was the point I was trying to make. Um, you know, even Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, is that his name? Mark Zuckerberg? Zuckerberg? Uh, Zuckerman. Zuckerman. Thank you. The Facebook... Um, owner, uh, CEO, uh, gave uh, just what is what a million dollars to Newark schools. So I think there is a, there is a great deal of philanthropy among the super rich. The, um, the mosquito netting uh, in various parts of Africa, are people uh, spending money to buy nets to send to them? Are people spending money to help them build factories so they can build their own nets? That's a great, great question. Um, and I've got a colleague who would be itching to answer that question, actually. Uh, because what you point to is the fact 
that um, I mean a number of another of a number of points you make. One is that the amount of money that is spent on shipping when there when there needs to be production in country to build up the local economy. And uh, when there's uh, production in country, then it obviously has greater proximity to the place where it's needed. Um, when there's production in country, it prevents things from happening that are happening on the continent of Africa right now. For example, there are bogus Chinese companies that are selling nets that are not insecticide treated at a lower price that people are buying and then dying. Um, so there needs to be more controls around uh, the production of the nets. A place where we've really focused is Tanzania. We've reached 1.7 million people in that country, actually through churches, because churches are the most trusted entity on the continent of Africa, churches and mosques, faith-based organizations. And uh, through sun- when your Sunday school teacher tells you to do something, you often obey your Sunday school teacher. And, uh, and so we've, we've actually seen that, you know, uh, that uh, churches are a great way to get malaria messages out, especially in the last mile. I think it's about 15% of healthcare. Um, Clinics in rural areas are operated by, you know, faith-based organizations. So um, we've seen incredible results in Tanzania, and there is a factory there locally that is, that is uh, distributing the nets. But that's a great point you make. Shipping stuff from here to there is not the solution. In fact, that just perpetuates poverty, and it keeps people dependent. And it actually is, a, um, is a, uh, an assault on their dignity frankly. So why do, why do 230,000 people die in five minutes uh, in Haiti? And, and because of the poverty. If the same sort of earthquake had occurred in, in the U.S., that many people would not have died. So you're right. There's an infrastructural poverty that's there beforehand, and it continues there now. And we have a lot of groups that mean well, and a lot of people in the U.S. that want to do well, what they're doing is shipping stuff down to there, and they feel like they're making an impact. And that does not make an impact because it's not sustainable development. It doesn't help that local community to build up its own kind of resources. And it's, in some ways, when I'm you know, having bad days, I call it neocolonialism because it, it, it sets up a power dynamic that really does keep us you know, continuing to be in, 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 uh, in, in power relations that are, that are not healthy. And it minimizes, frankly, the contributions that those communities already can make if they had access to capital and if they had an opportunity, which is, frankly, what they need. I mean, and none of us are where we are today because of, um, you know, I mean, the better question would be, where would you be if you did not have access to credit and capital, <laughs> which, is, which is our particular advantage in the U.S.? Yes, sir. On another topic, perhaps... Um, Dr. King, how would you think that Dr. King might respond to things that happen in our society today, like what happened in Tucson last Saturday? What, what would Dr. King call on us to do? What would he expect? What would his reaction be if that's possible to you know, think into the mind of who that man was? I'm not a King scholar. I've done a lot of reading, but I, you know, I'm not a, a King scholar. But I can say this: there's an interesting development in Dr. King's uh, thinking, from the earlier uh, kind of civil rights emphasis to a kind of peace and poverty focus. So you see, in the later King, a real emphasis, uh, and, and that's actually 
when um, the tide turned against him uh, in, in, in the U.S. was when he really did talk about uh, this, this, this peace and poverty emphasis. Yeah, of course, King clearly would have had a lot to say about um, that kind of violence and the kind of uh, stridency that has led to... Um, um, and I think, I think, you know, I think, I, frankly, I think uh, President Obama's message would have mirrored a lot of what King's message would have been. Um, I, think, I think Obama is in, the, is in the lineage of King in the sense of Obama's call for more civil discourse and for the way we actually relate to and talk to each other. It's really kind of amazing to me that the right, this is an opinion, the right uh, is quick to point out how, for example, the lyrics of rap music might lead to um, particular expressions of violence, but, but, but seems to be blind to the fact that um, political discourse might do the same thing. Um, words have power. Words have meaning. Uh, people would not pay what they pay for Super Bowl ads if words did not have power for 30 seconds of words. Um, so we've got to be careful with our words. And I think, I think King would say the same thing that sort of... Uh, President Obama, and others, and others, frankly, have said about toning down the discourse. I, I was one of the uh, marchers with Dr. Martin Luther King on August 28, 1963. Uh, humbly so. Uh, we did not know if we would be safe throughout the march or not, uh, but that was not an issue. We were not brave. We were just doing what needed to be done and what we needed to do in that day and time. And uh, adding to that, I just want to thank these three young men who work with you, who step out into brave causes to help this world, and to also make known to all of us here now that the next great hero of American life is not me, but is in fact present somewhere in this room. Thank you. Actually, it was the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that approached an organization in Washington, D.C. called the United Nations Foundation that vetted about a thousand organizations in the U.S. and landed on five or six, um, which include the Boy Scouts of America, the National Basketball Association. They have a program called Nothing But Nets. Um... Uh, the U Union of Reformed Judaism, uh, several others, and Lutheran World Relief. Um, because what they want to do is, you know, back to your point earlier, ma'am, um, you know, I guess one person like Gates could fund the whole thing. But what they really want to do is raise awareness and build human connections. And since there are approximately 8 million Lutherans in the U.S., and since the Lutheran Church is there are actually more Lutherans on the continent of Africa than there are Lutherans in, in, in North America. In fact, there are more Lutherans in two countries on the continent of Africa, in Ethiopia and Tanzania, than there are Lutherans in North America. Um, they wanted to build this kind of bridge and connectivity between communities, to build a beloved community, like King described, where people would actually know people. Um, and so that's one of the reasons that they landed on Lutheran World Relief as a recipient of upfront funding to develop a campaign to raise awareness and to raise money uh, to eradicate malaria deaths on the continent of Africa by 2015. And it's something that we can do, and we're, we're, we're convinced we can. 
How do you get involved? I think there's a person sitting at your right who can get you connected. Um, there are people at the table um, where our book is going to be sold, I guess. Uh, little things make big differences, and we'll be there to sign it. And, and So you can also learn more from the book. Or you can go to www.lwr.org, and we'd love for you to do that. Sir. Hi. Thanks so much for the talk. It really was beautiful. And, Thank you. Uh, I saw the movie this morning, and uh, one of the aspects was some beautiful music uh, in the civil rights movement. And Nina Simone, uh, her song about the prophet is dead, uh, concluded. Mm. The, and I guess maybe three questions or two questions. Uh, one, how did you meet your wife? <laughs> was it in the church in Chicago? or It was at, at a church in Chicago. And she was singing. And it was something about um, the joy of the Lord. (laughs) Or something. And the rest we can't agree on. We have actually two narratives. There's her story and there's the true story. So that's all I can really say about that, sir. I I, I guess a a second, this is somewhat of a comment, but... uh, I'm a Lutheran, and I appreciate uh, some help I've received from LWR Alex Wilson uh, oh, sure. regarding information on Tropical Storm Matthew that came through Nicaragua in September. And uh, there's a neat Lutheran connection in my church to the Lutheran Church in Nicaragua, which is really interesting. Excellent. I guess, uh, you know, I, I was over at this uh, Witness Against Torture in D.C. on Tuesday. Uh, there's still 173 uh, prisoners in Guantanamo, 10 10 years, it's coming into the 10th year imprisonment. I mean, in, in the long range of things, this is a small thing. On the other hand, it deals with justice in our, how we see justice, these 173 people. And one of the women, um, ordained Catholic priest, a woman ordained Catholic priest, said, you know, the 300 bishops and Catholic bishops really haven't spoken up about this imprisonment. And, I mean, I think... Sometimes, where is the voice, the voices uh, of uh, clergy? I mean, we're spending $2 billion a week, I think, in Afghanistan, and, and tremendous needs for our electrical systems, uh, everything, alternative energy, poverty in our own country. So uh, I, just, I guess if you may want to address this and... Um, not only about prisoners, illegal detainees, but uh, issues of violence, etc. Well, I, you know, I mean, courageous, uh, risk-taking voices, where are they? I mean, they're never popular. As I said, King was not popular. That's what people uh, don't seem to get. Um, you know, I've actually taught, there was a church in Chicago, very, very, very significant African-American Baptist church in Chicago, that when they changed the name of a major thoroughfare in Chicago to Martin Luther King Drive, the church changed its address to the side street so it didn't have to have Martin Luther King Drive on its name. So those voices, a very, very significant church. I could tell you the name, and, the, and actually the pastor was, uh, had a, had held a national position. That's, yeah, so... Uh, so, 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 so the issue here is that it's never popular to um, take hard positions or hard stances or take risks to speak to speak truth. No matter what side of, no matter what side you fall on with issues of truth, 
But frankly, the fact that you get this many people out on a Saturday afternoon who care about the message of King means, is, in my mind, is very, very encouraging. Um, so, I, you know, I think those voices and the, those people are still there. Some of it is maybe a question of mobilization. I have a question concerning um, the malaria. You talk about the nets. What are they doing about eradicating the mosquitoes? You know, it's, I don't understand all the science of this, but here's a few things I know. That if you can get malaria rates down to a certain level in a country, then the mosquitoes will take care of themselves. Because, see, the mosquitoes are, there's a, there's a magic number. I don't remember what that is or know what that is. Do any of you gentlemen know it? Around 80% coverage. If you can get 80% coverage, see, what the, the mosquitoes are transmitting the, 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 um, the parasite. Uh, between people. So if you can get the rate, frankly, I, I, if you notice my language, I say we can eradicate the threat of death from malaria. We can't ever eradicate malaria. In fact, we have malaria even in our population here, but it's not of, the, of, of a, a sort of level that it's being transmitted. So there is a, there is a number, uh, 80% number, if you can get 80% coverage and malaria rates down to a certain point, then it'll no longer kill people. And it's no, no longer transmitted. So it is absolutely something we can do something about. Like polio, we did something about that. And we can do something about this as well. Thank you. Um, let's give the Reverend a good a hand. Thank you very much.